Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined by my cartoon conversation comrade, Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello, Steve. How's your month well, months been? Oh, it's been fabulous. Uh, it's so fabulous that everything kind of clumps together in memory and I can't really pick out a single incident that has occurred since we have spoken last. <laughs> it's been kind of a, a haze of really, really frightful deadlines, which I think is something that you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Very much so. But, you know, things have settled down a little bit now. Good, 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 good. We should do a podcast, Ben. And who do we have on the uh, on the old guest roster? Returning to the Squiggly Podcast will be Mr. Bill Plimpton, talking about his latest feature film, yet another one, hot on the heels of Cheatin', which it seems like only just came out. He'll be talking about Revengeance. And we'll also be talking to Ciro Nieli, the executive producer of the latest incarnation of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So all that and loads more animation goodness. Ben, shall we get on with this Squiggly Podcast? I insist we do. So we were talking at the top of the podcast there about how busy we've both been. Um, and that's not just been busy uh, in our own little world. We've also been busy with a few kind of squiggly events, haven't we, Ben? Yes, we certainly have. We've been uh, out and about. <laughs> Hobnobbing. Pressing the flesh. We're, uh, we've been uh, kindly invited by Mr. Martin Pickles to attend and, uh, and run uh, the April edition of the London Animation Club. And for those that don't know, uh, I've never heard of the London Animation Club before. It is a pretty, it's a must-see event, really, if you're down in London or the London area. It, it's, a, it's just a, it's a gathering, really, of, of, of London animators who get to see uh, once a month, the first Tuesday of every month at the Green Man Pub in London. They get to indulge in an animator or somebody associated with animation's work. And um, for some reason, this month, they invited us. <laughs> we had a good time, didn't we, Ben? Yes, it was uh, nice to get out and put some uh, some faces to names. That's always, I think, the nicest thing about these types of events is, you know, actually confirming the, the real life existence of all these people that have been helping us out or been supporting us or been keeping us amused on Twitter. You know, it's nice to know we're not being catfished. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. It's it is it is nice to know that they're not all um Twitter bots, just enthusiastic Twitter bots. It is nice to put faces to names. And uh it was a lovely crowd, wasn't it? Really nice to meet uh, and to and to catch up with old friends as well. We had plenty of squiggly writers there um at the event too. So it was nice to catch up with those. But yeah, all in all a good kind of uh, a good chat. We had a a chat about the history of squiggly and you brought along a very special um, light box, kind of like a best of compilation. A very special episode. Very special episode. <laughs> and you can watch that on uh, on Vimeo now. It's up on our channel in glorious made for DVD SD. Glorious. It's a good little sampler of uh, who we've had on. And uh, uh, light box, as with the podcast, is also resumed. We've had some great sort of recent videos go up. The chaps who made Feast. Of course, the guys who uh, did the Dam Keeper, Robert and Dice. And some more people from the NFB, Luke Chamberlain, Marie-José St-Pierre. And uh, all sorts of wonderful guests on the horizon as well. We've got Peter Lord, Greg McLeod, Adam Elliott, Michaela Pavlatova, McKinnon and Saunders. Lots of stuff that I think, you know, has been kind of lined up for a while. More sort of upcoming uh, coverage 
in the wings as well for projects that have not yet been announced so we kind of have to bite our tongues but as you will of course know from being a regular reader of squiggly.com there's plenty of stuff a coming this year that i'm sure you're gonna want to have a front row seat for (laughs) sorry i'm starting to make myself nauseous with my (laughs) contrived copywritten (laughs) babble it's nice how you can make your babble sound like it's copywritten. Yeah, I'd make a, I'd make a great soulless exec. <laughs> the point is, we like what we do. We hope you like it too. Whilst we're patting ourselves on the back a little bit um, and being full of ourselves, Ben, let's admit it. We started off a, a series of screenings, which you may or may not have seen on the website under the, the separate name of uh, This Is Not A Cartoon. We've been very lucky to have uh, have been uh, given a little bit of funding from our friends at the BFI and support from um, Film Hub Northwest Central. So if you're in the northwest of England, Manchester, Derby, Lancaster, all around that area. And we kicked off the first ever one in Stoke on uh, Friday the 24th of April at Staffordshire University. And we had a special guest uh, lined up, uh, Mr. Ainsley Henderson. Uh, another person familiar with the podcast who's been on a couple of times and uh, also been on Lightbox. Uh, he came down and talked about He brought a few films. He brought uh, I'm Tom Moody. He brought uh, Monkey Love Experiments. And he brought uh, Moving On. And he uh, had a Q&A session afterwards and uh, hosted by uh, Stuart Messenger, the, uh, the guy who runs the BA Animation and the BA Stop Motion down there at Staffordshire University. And a good evening was had by all. People who uh, have been following Squiggly for a while may recall this is something that we sort of dipped our toe in the waters of last year and the year before with a f- couple of one-off sort of screening events. But this is not a cartoon, is a much more, I think, ambitious kind of... It's a touring venture, essentially, with a program that will be sort of taken to a variety of venues mm-hmm. over, the, uh, over the next few months. Given that in recent podcasts how much we've been sort of talking about the the rather visible like decline of festival culture in the UK because they're proving you know these kind of perceivable drains on resources or whatever you don't just want to stand back and let that die out and I think that uh, Jenny who has sort of spearheaded this new branch of of what it is that we're kind of doing with Squiggly you know she's uh, she's Baff alumnus. She knows her stuff. It's nice to kind of see this is being done it, you know, in the wake of the kind of demise of a, of a couple of quite major kind of audience draws as far as the animation industry goes. Mm-hmm. That There's some enthusiasm being kind of whipped up and that bums are getting on seats because of animation. You know, it's, it's a little reassuring, I would say. It's nice. It is really nice to see because, you know, as you say, if all these places are, are tumbling down, then there's an aud- a displaced audience out there who are sort of hungry for animation and, uh, you know, and, and as, as we're as squiggly as always been a, a kind of a community, it's nice to kind of create something in, in actuality as opposed to just writing up things for the websites or, or doing the podcast or videos and things. It's nice to actually go out there and present, you know, the work that we so, we know that we love so much and we like to ch- chat about and promote and, and things like that. And it's nice to uh, be able to get them up on a screen and, and put together something put together something special and uh, the opportunity to get people to come down and do these talks such as Ainsley for the first one it's something that I'm really excited about and something that all squiggly uh, well the whole squiggly um, team have worked hard on and uh, pretty proud of so if you want to come down to them 
it'd be great to see some faces. Uh, the next one is at the Derby Quad at the end of May. So you need to keep checking on the website, which is thisisnotacartoon.com. And the dates will no doubt pop up on there soon. And um, obviously we'll be, you know, singing and shouting and, and yelling about it on Twitter and Facebook as well. So follow the squiggly Facebook and Twitter feeds to find out more about that. Our next guest has been confirmed. It's going to be Daniel Greaves, the uh, the Oscar winner behind Manipulation. Uh, so he's going to be showing his film Mr. Plastimime at, uh, at the next screening. So yeah, we should talk really a little bit about what's on the actual programme. I have uh, a few of my favourites on here, and no doubt a few of yours as well, Ben. Um, we've got uh, Confusion Through Sand, A Single Life, Coda, Zeppo, World of Tomorrow, Moving On, and Mr. Plastimime. And they'll all be screening uh, next at Derby Quad. That's a, 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 we saw the first one in Stoke last week, and it's a pretty strong selection. Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great selection. It's kind of um, sort of squiggly favourites, new and old. We have some coverage on some of the films already up on the website, and some coverage upcoming. But yeah, I mean, a couple of my absolute sort of favourites of what we've been spoiled with as far as animation goes. I think that uh, Coda, which very nearly kind of made it onto the Oscar nominations, was particularly impressive. Yes. And uh, it was probably, I think, my favourite of like last year's Encounters, which is where I kind of first saw it. And I don't know, it just kind of does everything right. It's contemporary looking, but it doesn't sort of rely on a kind of minimal animation style. The animation is very fluid and very detailed and textured. It's quite haunting and quite beautiful, uh, but it's also quite unnerving. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't sort of pander, you know. And the subject matter, it could very, very easily fall into that in, in less capable hands. Certainly, I feel this film should kind of put Alan Holly more on the map. I'm sure he knows to many he is already. But uh, now this is, is really something special. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Plastermime, of course, we've, we've talked about uh, at some length in the past. And um, Ainsley's work. And, of course, uh, Don Hertzfeld's new film, mm -hmm. World of Tomorrow. Uh, which is available now, say if someone isn't able to to make a screening, but is particularly uh, uh, curious. You can throw some change at it on Vimeo and, uh, and rent it. But it's a film that I would actually say is probably hugely improved by watching it in a theatrical setting. Yes. Not that watching it on, on Vimeo or on your television makes it a crap film, <laughs> but it's so made for the big cinema experience. You know, which isn't something you can say about many films with stick figures in. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's something Hertzfeld's always just been able to absolutely nail, is that, you know, the actual kind of... And if you didn't know his work and you saw a couple of stills from the film, you might think to yourself, okay, well, what is it about this that everyone's gushing about? And you really just have to watch it. You know? it's, it's all there. We have an interview with Don on the website. If you haven't uh, yet read it, some nice insight into... It's kind of new territory for him. It's something that he kind of dabbled in. Uh, well, I think a lot of people saw his opening to The Simpsons mm -hmm. last year, which is the best thing I think I've seen on The Simpsons in about yes. 15 years. <laughs> I'm not even joking. 15 it, years ago was, was 2000 then, so you could even say 20 if you wanted. Honestly, I mean, I've, I've liked a lot of the other contributing directors. Mm -hmm. I thought Savannah Chamez is, is lovely. Bill Plimpton's are always great fun. You know, John Kay's was like taking angel dust. 
<laughs> the Banksy one, a lot of people, I did. I wasn't that impressed by that because it was making a lot of like jabs that the Simpsons themselves had made much better in the past about those. Yeah, yeah. So with Don Hertzfeld's contribution to the the couch gag, I guess is what they they call these. The kind of new direction, I suppose, of experimentation visually and stuff like that, I think, sets the tone in a way for World of Tomorrow. I think in terms of the the digital elements, certainly. And Don Hertzfeld, I think, was known largely for using mainly sort of analog and and sort of traditional filmmaking effects and and things like that. It had a great overall look to it. You could tell all the animation was done on paper. You could tell when film was being manipulated or scratched or burned or matte effects and masking effects and superimposing. One of my absolute favorite moments in the Hertzfeld filmography um, have you ever seen Wisdom Teeth? Yes. yes. I think that could be my favorite of all time. I don't think it's it's as well known as some of the others, but I just think it's so glorious in its simplicity. And there's a point where the main guy, I won't say why, but he starts hallucinating. And he just starts hallucinating like these little toy dinosaurs <laughs> that are like being wiggled around in front of, on the sort of edges of the screen. And, you know, oh, it's such a funny moment. <laughs> And that's his, his real gift is like his comic timing in telling stories that at times can be incredibly dark and incredibly moving. Yeah. Uh, I rewatched um, uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day. It's on Netflix at the moment. If you haven't seen that one, for God's sake, you know, you got to take the time. It, it's so masterful, I suppose, in getting that balance right. Like just when you think you're going to be like completely exhausted by like how sad a situation is and then something hysterical happens. You know, I think few people kind of really have, have absolute mastery over that. Probably Adam Elliott, I would say. And one or two others, I suppose, in, in, in a sense that um, it's quite hard to scare people with animation. Though it has certainly been done. And I think it's probably quite hard to move people. It's that's certainly With something. animation? I, yeah, I'm not saying it hasn't been done a lot, but I think it is a hard thing to do. I think that the people who have done it, it speaks a lot more for their ability. Hmm. I think it's quite easy to get like a cheap laugh in animation, or yeah. at least a polite courtesy laugh in animation. Yeah. And I don't even, I mean, I don't, when I say being moved by animation, I don't even count stuff like Toy Story 3. <laughs> Honestly, come on, guys. You're talking more like father and daughter, or, you know, Michael Dudok Dewitt's father and daughter, or something like Dog by Susie Templeton, or, or something like, something along the lines of where you, there's a profound effect upon you having watched this thing. Yeah. Whereas you're saying it's easy to go for comedy because animation is essentially caricature when you're drawing or, or, or representing, uh, you know, the human figure or, or maybe an anthropomorphic figure. It's essentially it's natural to go for comedy and easy to go for comedy. So whilst I might not necessarily agree that it's more difficult to be moving, it's probably easier to for people to go along the lines of doing comedy so when people do come along and create something profound or something moving it's a nice little treat and quite often um something moving or something profound does go along with comedy yeah oh, definitely I, well it, it, it heightens one another mm -hmm. it's a lot of it's probably more in the writing i suppose so I think a skilled writer can genuinely sort of get like an emotional reaction out of someone in a way that you don't actually have to be that necessarily. You can probably make someone laugh using the medium of animation, just in terms of the physical, like something like what Ant Blades does. 
Mm. You know nothing of the characterization. You know nothing of the you know this the the story of this family. You just see thirty seconds of you know the dad taking care of the kids in the park and how that goes, and not a word is spoken. Yeah, and it's absolutely. And I'm not I'm, okay. I'm not saying that's easy to do. Like that's a very extreme example of how you know great animation can be another exa- um, sorry another example of somebody who knows about animation comedy timing as well but i'm not sure you i i'm not sure even the most sort of skilled animator could in like less than a minute take a bunch of characters and purely through animation grab you on the heartstrings oh no not in a minute there's a challenge there are stuff out there that i'm sure is an example of that being done successfully but i just don't think compared to comedy it is it is nearly as prevalent and nearly as easy to do Mm-hmm. At any rate, I mean, what Don Hertzfeld is able to do very effectively is is write very moving stories with very funny gags and then combine very compelling visuals with, you know, very sort of minimal but also quite funny character animation. I mean, the, the animation on the little girl in uh, World of Tomorrow is just wonderful, just the way she runs about. Like, a lot of the humor, I think, is from just, like, the, the dialogue from, I think it's his niece who did the voice. And you, he's, they've kind of like Ike Bruflovskied it. Ah, uh, right. Okay. <laughs> Where they just have you not seen it? I've no, I've not seen it yet. No, I'm All waiting right. to see it on. I'll see it in Derby at the at the next screening. Get get a seat close to the screen. Yeah, because it's a good one. Uh, but yeah, this is it's a little kid who is visited by a clone of herself in the distant distant future, hmm. um, who has mastered time travel and takes the girl on a sort of trip to the future and explains to this completely oblivious toddler what the world of the future is like and tells her sort of life story and it's 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 very very good and it's not like really i think any i mean it's like a lot of stuff he's done but it's not like story wise it hasn't really kind of it doesn't feel like a sort of next extension of like something like it's such a beautiful day or you know balloon or rejected or anything like that it's absolutely its own thing Hmm. one thing it does take some um story elements from is his graphic novel uh, which is called The End of the World. And I reviewed it on Squiggly. Um, you can look that up on the Squiggly website. It's one of the best, like... It, I mean, whether or not... It's it's not like a sort of graphic novel in the comic book sense. It's more like it's a story in pictures. And as is sort of the case with his work, oftentimes these are stick figures and, you know, what seems sort of hastily kind of drawn little scenarios with captions. And just just his way of thinking... Like, the way he kind of thinks of ideas. I think this book is just such a great demonstration of that. Mm-hmm. I think of how sort of, like, great and weird something like The Far Side could be in one drawing and one caption. And I think of, like, a really, really sort of minimal version of that and a lot more, like, existential almost and philosophical and then sometimes just nonsense. And it, mm-hmm. it doesn't tell a story in a sort of linear sense, but as you read it, you get this very clear sense that something is happening. And you, you're actually sort of able to kind of follow these various story strands. Uh, anyway, some of those story strands appear in World of Tomorrow. Maybe he felt that they worked better in the film, or maybe he just liked them enough to use them twice, or knew that more people would see them, perhaps. I don't know how many people have the book, because it was quite an independent, sort of limited release. Mm. But if you can track it down, track it down, because it's a really, really good one. I do like graphic novels with a little extra. It's not when it's not all handed to you. Have you um, have you seen or read uh, Richard Maguire's Here? No. Well, it's based on, I think it was like a six or eight page comic, which you can view online. I think there's like a PDF on it on, on the Wikipedia page for, for it. 
of its time back when it was done in like 1986 or 87 or something like that. It's based, imagine the camera is in the corner of a room and we see from that spot the whole of history, but not as you turn pages, it's not linear. The page may be broken up by separate windows showing separate times. So you may see a living room in 1956 with a little panel of that particular spot where the panel lays with like a caveman lighting a fire or somebody in the far future. You kind of get story in bits and pieces as you go through the book and it's a nice journey. And I was looking, I was, you know, when you read the book or kind of indulge in the book, it's not really much of a reading uh, experience. When you sort of indulge yourself in this graphic novel, it's such a, such a great use of the form and it would, it would make a nice animation, but in the kind of graphic novel sense, it's good to see something as nice as that. Definitely. And it sounds like this is something that um, Don Hertzfeld's achieved as well, but obviously seen taken elements and stuck them in World of Tomorrow. They certainly work just as well, I would say, in the film. Possibly more suited to the film in the sense that they are, in the book, they're kind of isolated moments away from the kind of main thread of the story. Whereas with World of Tomorrow, it's a series of little stories and little sight gags <clears throat> here and there. They perhaps are better suited to the kind of narrative of World of Tomorrow. Either way, it's it's really worth you know it's worth checking them both up. And uh, from this next, uh, this is not a cartoon event on World of Tomorrow. I gather will be included in the lineup. Certainly, yes. Um, so that's at the Derby Quad, and we've got uh, Daniel Greaves coming up for a Q and A, and that's going to be at the end of May. So keep your eye on this is not a cartoon dot com. For further updates, and obviously follow Squiggly on Twitter and Facebook, because that's where we'll be yelling about it. It appears that we've we've travelled back in time to a to a much simpler age, where uh, Watership Down is in the works, and uh, there's a new Peanuts movie coming out, and Thunderbirds is back on the telly, and it's all kind of it's a bit weird, isn't it? Television and, and film at the moment. Well, there's always a kind of like moving wheel of um, you know remakes and retcons and what have you, but it did seem like you know in the first sort of quarter of this year that was really amped up. Mm-hmm. Like it, like every other day, there'd be another thing that didn't need to be remade being remade, and it's it's I don't know quite what it is about you know I did that I don't think that happened last year or the year before like to that degree yeah something really i don't know maybe just everyone lost faith in everything and just decided okay no more new ideas well they're they're even losing faith in the things that they should have ample faith in the remake of popeye or the reimagining of popeye by gendy tartakovsky that's not that's not happening anymore gutted absolutely gutted yeah that was the only one that i think people were actually excited about yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and there are live action versions of basically every single Disney film ever made in the works, mm. apart from the ones that have already been made. So, uh, yeah, Tim Burton's going to, to direct a new Dumbo movie. Pinocchio's coming up, which is a bit of a shame to see there's a Pinocchio movie coming up by Disney because I was really excited about the idea of Guillermo del Toro doing that. Oh, yeah. That was on the cards, on and off the table for, for absolutely ages. So it's a shame to see um it's a shame to see that that's gone another way but who knows that might be that might be absolutely fabulous. A lot of people kind of complaining when they see that 
Tim Burton's going to direct Dumbo and, and, and other people are going to do Pinocchio and obviously Cinderella's out in cinemas now and Beauty and the Beast and things like that. People kind of forgetting that these stories never belonged to Disney in the first place. <laughs> Although they're probably going to be taken on from the from their uh, from their Disney incarnation, so so as not to uh, uh, confuse audiences too much. It's weird, isn't it, that that, that we're seeing all these remakes? But in the same, but if you think about it, it is just basically they're they're playing it safe. We've uh, we've just come out of of quite a, a dire time in, in in animation terms. Obviously, things things last a lot longer. It takes a lot longer to create an animation, but we've just come out of quite dire times for animation in terms of funding and uh, and things like that. And these tax breaks have, have been only only been with us for the last two two years, two three years. It, it, I think it's about making the the best use of that. And so when you see remake a remake of of uh, Danger Mouse or a remake of the Clangers or, or Thunderbirds coming up, they're tried and tested brands. So uh, with with adults now with children. Who would they like to introduce their kids to the Clangers or the Thunderbirds or, or or anything really that they were into as kids? That is kind of people who have kids, but I'm sure there's people who who appreciate a remake of of uh, of all these things. And I am looking forward to seeing the majority of them. That's the thing is most of these people it doesn't matter if they have kids, <laughs> yeah. they watch it because they're all f-ing children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they watch it because they you know it's it's what they want to watch yeah absolutely the message is you can see why they're doing it it's it's it, there's a dead simple reason behind it is that you know it's it's a safe bet isn't it yeah so let's steer this course a little bit and then support the the uh, new stuff when that comes out you know when when uh, original material comes out support it there you go well Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the world put to rights <laughs> i've done my bit it does seem that in general there are certain kind of things that need to be um, considered when appeasing an audience. And the main consideration is don't change anything. <laughs> Just do it exactly the way it was done before. Mm. Uh, I think that from what I've seen, I think that's kind of what the Clangers has, has done. And in, certainly on a surface level, I would assume that probably the new stories and um, some of the new kind of sets or whatever are d- d- taking you know, a more contemporary approach. But what makes it, what the magic of it, I suppose, of the originals, it, it seems like they're trying to retain that. Mm. Whether or not you would say that the the magic of the original Thunderbirds has been compromised with the new ones. I mean, it's been met with, the look of it has been met with almost universal negativity. Yeah. As we've sort of seen on our kind of social media feeds. But I didn't really think the original Thunderbirds was that magical, to be honest. I, you know. Yeah, there's... I mean, we talked about this not that long ago. I don't think either of us were really on board with it as a as a defining childhood show. Yeah, it wasn't like... Um, it was like the thing that was on that you kind of had to sit through till the thing you wanted was on <laughs> afterwards. Yes, yeah, yeah. There is, a, there is a certain magic to them, to those Thunderbirds, those old Thunderbirds episodes. If you're into cars and vehicles and things like that, then... Then something like Thunderbirds was really exciting for you, or something like Stingray was 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 super exciting. And uh, I have watched the new Thunderbirds. It was on, I think it was on during Easter or something like that. And so I gave it a watch, and I was pleasantly surprised by it. I mean, I I, I watched it, tried to sort of ignore the sort of the 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 things that I didn't like about it aesthetically, i.e. the characters. Um, but it's a really good show, really well put together show, and I can see a new generation of fans developing from this 
uh, from the series because it's action packed. It's it's uh, adventurous. It's it's a great sort of action romp. Yeah, you know, there's a lot there's a lot in it for for kids to appreciate. At the end of the day, it's for them, really, isn't it? So it's 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 up to them whether it's any good or not. I think it's a similar thing with. Um Last year when Paddington was releasing its promotional visuals and things like that. And, and terrifying everyone. Yeah. You know, and also the, and the trailer for Paddington, the main trailer, was particularly repugnant. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the context of this of the finished film, it actually worked fine. And the film was, was quite liked. And there was nothing really... I mean, it was not a great film in the sense that it was a a childish fantasy film that, you know, I think most people, if they're absolutely honest with themselves, have kind of outgrown. Mm -hmm. But you could see how it would be brilliant as a family film. Yes, yeah. There's certainly nothing. You know, nice little sort of sight gags here and there. You know, Peter Capaldi was quite funny in it. Nothing about it was, like, super brilliant. But at the same time, you know, just the absence of that doesn't mean that it's necessarily this god-awful waste of everyone's time it broke some record which gave the people who backed the film or will give the people who backed the film extra confidence now to fund uh, more things you know so we'll see stuff like Shaun the Sheep getting a US release and, and things like that you know that Mooks might not necessarily have got it before uh, because it's got this kind of British animated character creation-y sort of vibe to it is that you reckon why Shaun the Sheep got a US release maybe not it's a bit. They're a bit late with the the US release, aren't they? I'm not entirely sure whether there's a, a direct connection there, but I think I, I follow your point in a sense that if there is a sort of time to kind of strike when people are kind of in the mood for something with a British identity, I suppose. I think in a lot of respects, everything's kind of judged on on a sort of individual basis as well. You know, there's plenty of stuff I think that has been done that has you know a, a transatlantic identity that uh, doesn't seem to be any logic or any rhyme or reason to what translates effectively overseas and what only works here. What I'm saying is, is that um, Studio Canal would have seen the successes of Paddington and the successes of Shaun the Sheep, and you know that would have given him a confidence to sign of go with this kind of thing again. Oh, yeah. I mean, with Studio Canal uh, and Ardman, they still have a good relationship, it seems. There's the new uh, Nick Park feature, yeah. Early Man, that was just announced. So so I would say that theory is definitely uh, born fruit. Yeah. At any rate, Thunderbirds, whatever people think of it, is is here. It's uh, is on TV. It's been remade mm. uh, amongst its other kind of remake brethren. Certainly the kind of uh, outrage of the initial kind of unveiling hasn't been followed up on. Probably yeah, probably the people who were complaining about the screenshots aren't actually watching the show anyway. They just... Everyone loves a good complain. Mm-hmm. It's, their entire podcast are built upon that foundation. <laughs> I, do, I actually find it quite reassuring because I have a few things that, you know, I've been known to complain about myself and there's this little voice in the back of one's head that is kind of constantly saying, well, it is kind of ephemera. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't actually really matter and just because you liked something as a kid doesn't mean that necessarily you need your voice heard on this matter. And I'm like, well, no, but it's not Twin Peaks without David Lynch. (laughs) So, you know, when I see people kind of making those same kind of, you know, ranty, as though they're talking about political unrest, but it's actually, you know, oh, the Captain Scarlet's hat isn't Scarlet enough. (laughs) I don't even know if that sentence makes sense in the (laughs) Captain Scarlet-averse, but you know what I mean. (laughs) 
so yeah, it does make my uh, my own personal you know rantings and ravings feel like they're in in some company. Did the Captain Scarlet universe were they all just different colours? Is that why the? I honestly don't even know what Captain Scarlet is a hundred percent. Was it like Thunderbirds? It's just just a bloke in a scarlet. It's like a bloke in a scarlet uniform, but it looked a bit more like Action Man than than you know the the Thunderbirds puppets looked a little bit weird because they had like big bobbly heads and little bodies. Whereas Captain Scarlet looked a little bit more like an action man figure. And he was he was against the Mysterons, I think. Was it the Mysterons? Yeah, it was the Mysterons. Um, which were basically just two green circles, I think, which were just shone on the set. This is one of those sort of Steve moments I absolutely love, which begins with you asking me about something that you have no knowledge of, and you then proceed to enlighten me with an encyclopedic no, knowledge of it, all the characters and no, the no, universe. No, because it, it unravels in my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, it unravels in my head, and I just remember what because I never, I never, I could never sit through an entire Captain Scarlet episode. As you say, it's the thing that you sit and watch while you're waiting for some cartoons to come on or something good, you know. And so Captain Scarlet to me was, but I seem to remember was it the Mistrons were just like a light. And I seem to remember watching that thinking, well, it's, it's just a light. Why, why are they all shitting themselves over it? What's, 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 the, what's the deal? And I did, I think, Captain Scarlet, and there was like Captain Green and Captain... I, I might have been, been confusing it with the Power Rangers. <laughs> all these different coloured captains. I don't think it was a coincidence that he was Captain Scarlet and he wore a Scarlet uniform. I don't think it, like Scarlet was his surname or something. Yeah, it was Professor Plum and Colonel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just imagine, like, you know, the person who turned up to induction late, well, you get to be Captain Pink, you know, and it's all sudden Pulp Fiction. <laughs> but yes, yeah, um, Thunderbirds is back. And, and, I'm, and no doubt being enjoyed by kids up and down the country. Up and down the country. Up and down the country, yeah, yeah. Left and right. It was a curious beast, the whole remake thing, as we were just kind of chatting about before. And some of the franchises that just simply don't die, hmm. despite, uh, I'm sure, people who are probably, you know, quite enthusiastic to never hear from them again. Yes, especially sort of like some of them when they get announced and you're just like, but why? <laughs> like, it, and either because the original was good like i mean what are you improving on like mm-hmm. nothing is sort of dated the film necessarily apart from perhaps like the grain of the film or, the, or just the kind of the sense that it's something that's more than 10 or 20 years old and certainly i don't imagine any, any version of any new version of watership down would necessarily bring anything new to the table it's possible but i you know i, I don't think that as far as the story goes i think it was accommodated perfectly well by the original film i did see when i was shopping a couple of months ago I mean, you know one of the most depressing places to go into now when you're shopping is like dvd stores oh yeah just because there's just the, the smell of death is in the air <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they had like you know especially like ones like the ones where they kind of like they dig out all like the sort of box sets and stuff that have been like you know gathering dust in the back they're like a pile of watership down box sets and i guess they made a show of it like in the late 90s yeah you know, for all the impact that made. And it had, like, all these famous people in it <clears throat> doing the voices and stuff. And so I was like, well, that certainly hasn't been regarded as a classic of of animation, as an ad- animation adaptation or something that uh, superseded the film, the original film, uh, like, as, like, a newer example, as a newer remake. I expect maybe there was a bit of interest when it was on, but I don't think it's regarded as a classic TV show. 
I would no, I wouldn't. Certainly, these box sets didn't uh, look like they were flying off the shelves. I don't know if it was done around about the same time. In fact, no, I think it was done. I think the Warship Down came about six years after the Animals of Farthing Wood. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, my brother was my brother. My brother loved that, but that's a kind of your brother. My brother, yeah. Well, what, what, what's wrong with what's wrong with that? I don't, I have no. Just the, I don't really remember the. Sh- I can't really picture it, mm. but. There's something very kind of like Sylvanian families Enid Blytony about like something with a name, the animals of Farthingwood. No, no, no. The animals of Farthingwood wasn't wasn't Sylvanian families and stuff. The animals of Farthingwood was which animal is going to die this week? Oh, really? That's what the animal. Yeah, that's what okay. the animals of Farthingwood was all about. Ben, oh, get on board. I see. <laughs> and so it started off. There was uh, some kind of wildlife park which was being um, demolished. And uh, all the animals decided to get together and we promised we won't eat each other. You know, we won't kill each other and all that kind of stuff. And we need to, we need to move from one place to the other. And every week it'd be like, oh, we have to cross the road this week. So the hedgehogs would die. Oh, then we have to cross (laughs) the river this week. So like the moles would die. And it's like every week somebody would, somebody would, would end up dead. This show sounds brilliant. It is, it's excellent, it's excellent. <laughs> and then they got to the park, and then there were these other foxes there. And, and it was just it was just about them having a, a fight with them all the time, and it was it was like Game of Thrones. Well, there you go, then. My, uh, <laughs> go good for your brother, for having having the taste. Sort of elsewhere, the, um, the nature of uh, the ever kind of, you know, the ever-expanding universes of things, and, you know... Yet another Batman iteration, and yet another, and they doing like that, that the Fantastic Four again. Yeah, they just did that, didn't they? The, the commish was the Rock guy. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't really think that could have happened more than five years ago, right? Um, is time just going by that quickly? Well, do you know? Do you know who the Rock guy is now? No, Billy Elliot. Oh, for real? Yeah, oh, that's funny. <laughs> did you, have you seen a Nymphomaniac? I've not, no. no. Billy Elliot shows up in that. He is a f***ing creep. Yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who makes Fantastic Four. It might be either Sony or Fox. But that's a kind of... Um, the whole Marvel wrangling kind of deal because they own um, some Marvel characters um, and they won't give them back to Marvel. So they're making a film about it. And in, and in return... Marvel Comics have stopped making Fantastic Four comics. So... <laughs> Take that. Yeah, so it's just like, they're just... What a bunch of dorks. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Of... I so want to just beat them up and take their lunch money. <laughs> but yeah, that's, 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 what, that's the deal there, is they're, uh, they're just doing what they want and redoing it. I think they're trying to make it more like... Um, was it Chronicle? Do you remember Chronicle? It was filmed like Blair Witch or, or there's an old reference, Blair Witch or something like a hidden camera thing about these kids that get superhero powers. Okay. And um, yeah, and, and then it's so, so apparently the new Fantastic Four is going to be a little bit like that. Oh. Yeah, it'll end up just being another another superhero film for the pile of superhero films that are out nowadays. To be a, like a, a proper sort of hardcore fan, like the the people who kind of need to sort of see every version. Like, if you're a kid going... I was talking to um, a fellow animator recently. His son was in the room. We got onto, like, remakes and things like Ninja Turtles. 
and stuff like that. His son is a fan of Ninja Turtles, I gather. But the son, who I don't know how old he is, I think quite young, he made the point that he, having sort of canvassed what is out there in the Ninja Turtles universe, he had sort of come to the conclusion that the best version, in his mind, was the old Jim Henson puppet version. Hmm. Which I would I would have said, but that's only because I was that kid's age when that film came out. And at the time, it was really very sort of mind-blowing as a visual, uh, as quaint as it probably seems now. It must be quite overwhelming to kind of like embark on that universe as a kid, given how many versions of the Ninja Turtles there are. Yeah. And how much um, contradiction there is, perhaps, and like, you know, the, the personality types and the tone and everything. There was a quite interesting documentary called Turtle Power that I thought, oh, this will actually bring me up to speed. Because, you know, it's, it's I guess, about the nature of how a, this kind of thing is franchised out. It actually didn't, really. It, it only went up to the point where my actual memory of it ends, mm-hmm. which is a little unfortunate, because like, I, was, I was actually sort of interested in, okay, what happened after I, at whatever age, 10 or 11, tapped out of this? Yeah. But it didn't really go into that. It just sort of went up to, like, the mid-90s and then just kind of stopped. But what was really fascinating about it was how much... It, I had always thought that Ninja Turtles as a as a property was unique amongst the stuff that was produced in the 80s that was mainly sort of made to sell a line of toys. And I had figured that, that Ninja Turtles was actually, as an adaptation of a comic book, something that very happily fit into the mold of, okay, and now we can then merchandise this heavily. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, this documentary was quite fascinating. It, it was actually always all about the toys. Yeah. Like, they would, before the actual animated series, they looked at the comic and they were like, okay, we need to get some toys out using this comic as a very basic sort of rough guide of, like, what kind of monsters we can come up with and what kind of tools and accessories and play sets. And uh, so, actually, Ninja Turtles is, like, the most cynical one of all, <laughs> as far as, like, how it was conceived. Yeah. And the show that they ended up making after the toy line ended up being quite enduring, and then, you know, that spawned the movie, and then it just sort of goes crazy from there. So, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. But then to sort of see, like, how many... Like, if you walk down any sort of, like, aisle of a, a Asda or a toy shop or anything that sells toys, and you will see you can buy, like, all sorts of different versions of the same character. <laughs> If some kid tells his grandma, like, what do you want for Christmas, dearie? I want a Donatello. She buys him the wrong one. I hate you, grandma. <laughs> this is why you don't get invited around enough. <laughs> I just wanted to impress. <laughs> I'm hip. So, yeah, so, you know, the, the new film that came out last year, the design of a, one toy is there's a huge disparity between the design of the same character that is being sold at the same time. It gets a bit overwhelming. I Well, probably not, actually. I'm sure kids are able to count to two. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like, it's that kind of thing of like, okay, well, I, I'm a fan of this, but I'm not a fan of this version of this. Yeah. You know, and even just being a casual... We were talking about, like, the Batman films last episode. Like, just being a casual fan of Batman. Yeah. Like, I, I kind of feel like I have to pick and choose, okay, which are the ones that are actually worth watching. Like, if you oh, Batman's on. Oh, it's this version. And you need to be in a particular mood to want to sit down and watch, like, the Tim Burton filtered version of Batman. It would be quite a different mood if you're going to watch the Chris Nolan one, or maybe, like, the really campy old Adam West one. Probably the same kind of thing. Anyway. The Adam West one fits any occasion, Ben. I'm sure it does. (laughs) 
so I'm kind of sort of thinking of all of this as you know with all the sort of remake talk and stuff. I did recently uh, get some time with Sirion Yeli, who is the current head of the Nickelodeon version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and this is the show that has been going on for uh, a couple of years now. I think in like one of the first or early podcasts we were talking about like the announcement and I think I had a kind of variation on the same kind of conversation of like how many different ways can you do this show this way seems to be doing very well it's definitely it's one of those kids shows that grown-ups are quite happy to defend as being perfectly watchable as a grown-up that is a line that I have some ambivalence toward I would certainly say that about certain shows but there is a part of me that's aware that actually probably not that many people my age, if we're talking about like all the people, are going to be prepared to sit down and watch something like The Powerpuff Girls, because according to some guy, it's quite funny and sharp, like humorous in a way that like anyone can engage with. I do know that actually it's not, that actually probably quite a lot of people would sit down and watch the best ever episode or era of The Powerpuff Girls and think to themselves, this is cutesy girly sh- Mm-hmm. So I think that there's always that component. Like, you know, it's like how there's a whole subculture of, of it's like this sort of badge of honor to be able to, to proclaim, I get my little pony. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's sort of weird. That, that That's almost become like a lifestyle choice. Yeah. It's, and it's sort of like, I, I wonder a little bit about the authenticity, not about everyone, but about some of the people who are probably just kind of glomming onto it. It's like, oh, that would be kind of a weird, quirky thing to say. A man my age. Mm-hmm. I'll walk down the street with the the glitteriest, shiniest My Little Pony t-shirt, the tightest fitting one I can find. Um, and they all look like me. That's a weird... <laughs> these guys who love My Little Pony, they, they, this is like looking in a mirror, except I'm wearing a My Little Pony t-shirt. Are these the bronies? Yeah. <sighs> You know, it's. I mean, that's kind of. I don't know how many steps away from that. Like, before you get to furries, <laughs> <laughs> I, and I've had the conversations with people who we like. I've said, okay, well, enlighten me. Tell me exactly what the. And there have been other documentaries and things about it as a as a phenomenon and stuff. And a case is made that it's a good show and it has a you know that has a fandom. But there is a different case I think to be made that is like, well, what is the what accounts for the fervent fandom because it's not something that you would compare even to most grown-up obsessions with shows like breaking bad or game of thrones or other sort of shows that are you know for an older audience in terms of the just the content mm. being sort of you know limited to being above a certain age and much as i kind of prattle on about shows that i like the way i think that people kind of obsess over things like this kind of thing that I don't know what it is. It's something it's usually to do with cartoons. A lot of it is to do with anime as well mm-hmm. uh, as, as a particular branch of animated films or shows that completely capture people to the point where, you know, they have to live the lives of these fictional characters. They have to emulate. I get that impulse. Absolutely. And I was a fat little bastard when I was a teenager. And if I didn't watch every episode of the Sopranos and study James Gandolfini, I would not have had any game whatsoever. I, I owe my, my formative life experience to being able to kind of talk to people in a certain way, have confidence and have a certain way of walking. I didn't shoot people in the kneecaps. I didn't kind of you know take on that side of things, but definitely, yes, okay, well, this is a character 
this represents who I want to be at this point in my life because maybe right now just being myself is probably, you know, going to lead to some weekends spent in alone. Right. And you don't want to do that when you're a teenager. You want to go on dates and you want to meet people and you want to experience as much as you can experience and make as many mistakes as you can before your 20s. What I don't get is if, if I were doing that at my age now, if I was going out and like talking to people like Tony Soprano and not even James Gandolfini, like the, the character, you know, that was that was who I was emulating. It wasn't even the real guy. Hmm. If I were to do that now in my 30s, that would be sort of pathetic and alarming. Mm-hmm. So that is that I guess sort of it raises a bit of a flag in a sense of people who kind of they become obsessively fans of things that have perceivably way less sort of merit or, or cultural weight than an actual sort of mm-hmm. game-changing live-action drama television show. Oh, I'm, I, I identify most with, you know, Plinky Pants, because <laughs> when he found the gemstone, that really represented my internal life struggles. Mm-hmm. And then when he fought Flumbleflu in season three, episode 17, it just was so, you know, I, I, I knew that that was the... What? <laughs> Oh, there you go. I'm learning all sorts of things. That's what I like about this podcast is just how much I I learn about the other goings-on in the world. (laughs) The internet. It's a dark, horrible place. Ninja Turtles next. This is a really nice chat. He's a very interesting guy. I thought his thoughts on the movie being made, the Michael Bay movie being made sort of alongside the show... I don't think you could even really sort of consider them being part of the same universe at all. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that, you know, they chose to make this movie while there was this other new version of the uh, of the Ninja Turtles out. I mean, as was, you know, was the case with the original Jim Henson movie, like it was, but it was, I think, considered kind of like an adaptation of the show. When there's only like one of each, like there's one comic, there's one show, and there's one movie, it all kind of makes a lot more sense back then. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think like now there are a billion like versions of Ninja Turtles like to it's kind of like okay one at a time folks yeah at any rate the better person of course to talk about all this is uh, the man himself so let's hand it over to Cyril Nieli of the Nickelodeon version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles first of all it'd be great to talk a little bit about uh, your career prior to working on Ninja Turtles I guess specifically um, Robot Monkey Team. Um, which is uh-huh. a long-form show, and how uh, this project differs from that one. Well, I really love that show. I mean, I, I did that, that, was, that must have been 11 years ago now, and um, it was almost kind of like, in a weird way, training ground to do Turtles. In fact, uh, a real funny moment, I, um, I'm good friends with Bob Burden, who created the Flaming Carrot, and I remember one year... Way back, this must have been 2004, I was with him at Comic-Con in San Diego, and Kevin Eastman's hanging out, and Bob says to Kevin, Hey, Kevin, uh, my friend Ciro here has a show with a long, ridiculous name like you did. And uh, (laughs) it was pretty funny for me. I was like, I was geeking out hard. (laughs) And uh, so that was actually one of the first times I met Kevin. So, um, yeah, you know, that that show taught me a lot of lessons. It also, you know, kind of forged a lot of relationships, I think, with specific artists and writers that I still use now on Turtles. So um, there was definitely, definitely, definitely the foundation for Turtles was forged in Super Robot in a big way. Uh, Were you a fan of the old Turtles from way back in the day? Well, what happened was uh, I was a huge fan of the Mirage books, Volume 1. And then, um, you know, by the time the cartoon came out, 
it, it bared no resemblance to that. So I wasn't used to, I think it's more common now, the idea that you have one aspect of a franchise and that another almost kind of like wing of it could come out that's, that bears no resemblance and just kind of spreads the franchise out. And uh, that might have kind of even started that idea. Like you see that all the time now with, you know, you have a comic and then there's the cartoon property looks different and then the live action property different and the toys can be different. But at the time I just, I kind of was slightly outraged that the Fred Wolf show was nothing like my comic that I had spent years bragging about to all my friends, how they didn't know how cool it was. And then here comes this show that was nothing about ninjas, that was all about eating pizza. And uh, I just, I was also a little older and I think it was like after my time like, I probably, it was, I wasn't the target audience anymore. So I've actually really appreciated working on this show because for the first time I've been able to kind of really look at that series and, and, and appreciate it and, and kind of understand what it's supposed to be and how it really could work. It's sort of interesting that, like you say, so many different uh, iterations of the premise and the characters and especially the, uh, the movie... With what I confess, I haven't seen the film, but it seems like there's a quite cosmic disparity between the movie and what you're doing on the show, style-wise and tone-wise. Yeah. And are those, when it is part of the same franchise, I mean, are those like completely separate endeavors, or does one inform the other at all? No. Well, what happened with the movie? I mean, they made a conscious decision to make that movie absolutely different. Right. Because I think they wanted to kind of go, hey, you know, this is a very rich kind of franchise and we should just kind of spread it out and see where it works differently uh, and how it works differently and, and well. And um, so when we went through actually, in the, in the very beginning when those guys started making that film, they came and spoke to me, some of the producers and the director, and they looked through some of the artwork and kind of, you know, saw what we had. And just like I think they were, because we hadn't aired yet, and uh, just the same as I think they probably looked at everything, whether it was the 2K3 show or the Mirage comic, you know. They just kind of wanted to get a sense of what was out there. And then they, they basically went away, like literally went away and um, didn't come back and talk to us till the very finale before. Uh, I saw a cut of the film maybe eight weeks before it released and, uh, you know, gave some thoughts on it and kind of like touched base with us again. So it was a very, very independent production from the from the show, and I'm grateful because, um, you know, so many times I think people get stuck working on shows where they just have to kind of follow a film, which is sad. You know, it's kind of good for for it was great for us to be able to just kind of do what we wanted, and we had a big lead on them. We were we were we were already a few years in before they started. Yeah, excellent. And also, when you consider how many other versions of the series have happened, I mean, do you? at all look back to some of the earlier comics and series and movies for source material or is it more of a you know completely clean slate kind of thing I definitely look at some of that stuff I, I don't I mean I'll look at that stuff in odd ways like I don't necessarily look at them in this total way where I'm trying to find stories to lift or characters that I'm going to just literally copy I, I kind of you know sometimes we'll look at the 80s show and just We'll just have it on in the background. If the character says something kind of silly, we'll we'll throw it in there, just like a line of dialogue, and see who catches it. And they usually catch it, the the diehard fans. So there's a, there's a there's a giant range of things that we pull from at different times, just depending on how we feel. Um, one of the the main things I think that we looked at was the 
the Mirage, the early Mirage series, and we did that out of the gate when I was, well, actually I looked at it when I was developing the series. I mean, that was always my thing. So that's kind of where I built the foundation of the show on. Were there any sort of considerations required in creating a 2012 onward version of the show in terms of like updating it, contemporizing it to uh, today's kids? I mean, I, I think that that kind of happens all the time when these shows get kind of, you know, quote-unquote rebooted. And it kind of drives me crazy, you know. I think a lot of people came in and, and pitched their version of Turtles that did exactly what you're saying. There was this concern of how do we change this to make it super awesome. And um, that was actually not at all what I had done. My, my whole pitch was just kind of looking into the center of Turtles and what it was and kind of just extracting that and amplifying it. Like, I, I didn't deviate from what it had always been, which to me was this idea of four brothers and the camaraderie and the, them goofing around and strange characters in the real world having crazy stories. You know, that was always always what I wanted it to be. When I was pitching it, you know, then they turned and said, well, what about April? And, uh, you know, that was the one thing I kind of changed a, a bit. You know, I, I, I aged her down just to kind of make her a little bit more active. She played a little bit of a role of like a den mom in, in all the other versions, and then or like a total damsel in distress, which gets old, you know. Yeah, it's it's also interesting that and a few people have commented on it's one of the few versions of of Ninja Turtles where they actually it, it sort of embraces the teenage element a lot more. It seems. Yeah. They always seemed like older. It felt to me in in other versions, whereas there's something much more sort of youthful and you know, idiosyncratic about how people are when they're teenagers that seems to be present in the characterizations this time around. Yeah, we're trying with that's that's kind of the biggest thing of the show. It's like it's it's never been teenage mutant ninja turtles, it's always just been like, you know, strange man turtles. <laughs> uh, I think the ninety movie, the the first nineteen ninety movie, you got a sense that they were like clowning around kids yeah. the most. But um not really anywhere else. Definitely not in the cartoons. I, I just but I think that was a product of the time. I think, you know, 80s cartoons definitely were limited. And I think 90s cartoons, I'm not going to fault uh, 2K3 in that, you know, that, that whole series ended up kind of falling prey to just that, that formula that came out of the 90s of just like a toy-driven show, which is also one-dimensional in its own terrible way, you know, that, that falling into those traps. So we're lucky, you know, we get to use like, you know, modern storytelling and we get to use all these modern means and make a really beautiful CG show and do all this subtle stuff. As well as the uh, the main cast, I've noticed the show has had some really great voice talent like uh, Robert Englund and Roseanne and Lewis Black. Um, and has the show in general been a big draw for established performers such as those to come in from time to time? I think at first, you know, you, you go out to a... a you know, kind of a, a well-known celebrity voice person, and they go, Ninja Turtles, and, you know, they can have one reaction or another, which is like, that's still around, or that's corny, or... But then I think they, you know, a lot of this is done through friends. Like, you know, obviously, like, word of mouth goes around, and I think the quality of the show is really good, and I think it's it's lauded a little bit. So I think, you know, I definitely know, like, some of those people, like Roseanne, I was able to get in on kind of a friend card, because she's, you know, she's a buddy of mine, and she believed in me, so she just kind of came on. But it wasn't, uh, I haven't really been turned down so much because of, uh, very, very few times 
And it's usually because people are really busy, except for one. It's been my dream to have uh, Harvey Keitel do a voice, but I think he doesn't do cartoons. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but, uh, and I've done this with every show. No matter what cartoon I work on, I always go out to Harvey Keitel for something, and I always get a kind, no thanks. But, you know, some of those guys that you mentioned I've used before on other things. Um, they're just, you know, they're just kind of relationships that you build. Excellent. Excellent. Well, all the best with it, and uh, uh, long may it continue. Uh, it's great to see it being kept alive and being kept fresh, and... Uh, yeah, it seems like everyone's really digging it, so uh, congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. So thank you to Sarah Nieli, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, not Hero Turtles. We've left those dark days behind us. Uh, it's on Nickelodeon. You can find out more at nick.co.uk. The show has, I believe, been renewed for a fourth season, which will keep it going for another little while. I think it's in its third at the moment. And uh, a lot of people I have a lot of time for have a lot of nice things to say about it. So uh, give it a look if you have some young'uns and need to keep them distracted, or if you just want to indulge a bit of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I saw this in um, a local bookstore, shall we say. This isn't something that I've just kind of made up. Uh, the Ninja Turtles meet the Ghostbusters. Get away. I kind of feel like, and you couldn't get a bigger like Ghostbusters slash Ninja Turtles fan than you could I as a as a four, five, six year old, mm-hmm. right? But that has to be who that's catering to, right? Like people who loved the show, both shows or movies in the eighties. But everyone then will be older. They'll be my age and older, right? So is that successful as a comic? Is that like? You just want to say to these like franchises, go home. You've had too much. I don't. I, I'm sick of Ghostbusters now. It's everywhere, and I, you know, that's a horrible thing to admit. Oh, for a Ghostbusters fan, exactly. Someone who liked the old film. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think of like adult examples because there are rarely sort of like films that really have a kind of impact that the childhood film does. Like I don't know if they took like Fargo and made that a show. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, that was actually quite good. Bad example. Uh, they took uh, they took Barton Fink, and they made like fifty video games out of it, and eighteen graphic novel series, and then made Barton Fink meets uh, the Hudsucker Proxy as you know a whole new series of like collectible trading cards. <laughs> They're doing a Fight Club two as a graphic novel series, and I'm kind of like in two minds about that. Yeah, because Paul and Nick's in on it, so that's like ah oh, crap. Well, then I'm going to look at it if he's involved. But a part of me is like, I, I worry about the door that will open because Fight Club is more than a, a, a cult book. It's a, it's a quite successful cult movie. It has, I'm sure, a cinematic following that will probably match the kind of enthusiasm you get for stuff like Rocky Horror Picture Show or The Big Lebowski and stuff like that. So I worry that when they open that first door of like, and now we're doing the sequel comic series, what's that going to lead to? Yeah. I mean, you can always just ignore it all, and by and large, I generally do. Because, you know, if I didn't have a, a podcast about cartoons, I don't think there would ever be cause to bring up the Ghostbusters meet Ninja Turtles comic. But, you know what I mean? Like, you see it, and you register it, and there is this part of you that kind of wonders why. Anyway. It is, it is mad. Um, and it leads on to something that... I have been introduced to in the last couple of days, but it's a world that I've not indulged in because I've not really had much of a time 
we were talking about like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles meets the Ghostbusters, which was like a, I, I presume that was like a legitimate franchise. The, the franchises got together and decided like the Flintstones meet the Jetsons, for example. Yeah, this will be a good idea. Yeah, this, this, is, this is fine. This is fine. Well, <laughs> such adventures, are, they're being made and they're being kind of done online. I'm going to send you a link now to um, the Pooh's adventure series of videos and stories and stuff. And it's there's so many of these. They've got, some, they've got their own Wiki, uh, Wikipedia. Okay. Which are made for YouTube. So this is the, uh, the Pooh's adventure series. Okay. Uh, this wiki is about uh, Pooh's adventure series on YouTube. So sit down, grab some popcorn honey and enjoy the movies as Winnie the Pooh and his friends go into new worlds outside the Disney studios in the Hundred Acre Wood where they will meet new friends, batter bitter enemies and save the world at the same time. Okay. This is all fan-made stuff. Right. What What is the product? The product are, are YouTube videos. So you have Pooh's Adventures of the Flintstones movie. Pooh's Adventures of Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island. Just click on any random one, Ben, and and, and enjoy. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm seeing, like, wiki entries and things, and I... Uh, yeah. yeah. So, Pooh's Adventures of Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island is the first Winnie the Pooh slash Scooby-Doo movie by... And then the name of the person. Trivia. Simba, Timon, Pumbaa, Tennessee Tuxedo, and Chumley guest star in this film. Hmm. I want to find the YouTube. We can live reaction this. Right, let's see how bad this is. This is what I'm viewing now. Pooh's Adventures of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Jeepers, It's the Creeper, The Dark Crystal, Part 1. It sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Oh my God, it's, it's taking so f***ing long on all these. So they've got, and then the Universal logo. So like, they've got the Disney logo. They've got the Walt Disney logo. They've got the Universal logo. They've got the Jim Henson logo. A whole minute's worth of logos a minute and 42 seconds you know they bet they haven't got yeah a warm body to hold at night (laughs) because believe me i'm sure that extinguishes so many of these impulses to just sit down and do this (laughs) so it's like a okay i've I've finally got the worst compressed video ever made running ziv cheng productions oh oh christ I'm going to send you a new one to watch and skip through the skip through the film logos. This is the one. This is the one. So this is Pooh's Adventures of Scooby Doo. Where are you? Jeepers! It's the Creeper. The Dark Crystal Part One. So we've seen we've sat through a minute and forty five uh, seconds of opening logos. So let's press play then and let's describe what's special happening. presentation. <laughs> So it's the, the Warner Brothers. Hi, we're the Warner Brothers. And the Warner Sisters. And we'd like to invite you and all the members of your household to gather around the TV set and join us now for a very special episode of... <coughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> what? What's happening now? <laughs> It's all gone quiet. <laughs> this is the so the Is this how they do it? They just <laughs> What has happened, dear listener, is that this animated segment that is the Animaniacs introducing the story is every time they go off the original script, 
the sound just drops and then subtitles appear, which is sort of, I would classify that as unwatchable. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like, absolutely. And now we're in the opening titles, I guess. So this is just a montage of clips from various shows set to the Winnie the Pooh theme song. Holy sh**, this goes on forever. Okay, now we're watching Scooby-Doo. Like very old 70s looking Scooby-Doo. More credits. Yeah, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a dramatic reading of this little play that those people have put together. I'm going to... We're almost there. Thanks for letting us come with you to the dart. Just cuts to Winnie the Pooh on his own in a completely different location with the subtitles. They gets them back to the, the mystery Scooby-Doo van <laughs> and the ginger girl is like, no problem, Pooh Bear. Subtitles, no sound. Then we have two animated dogs. I have no idea what they're from. No idea. I've never seen a school dance at our home. Then Buzz and Woody show up from Toy Story. So see from Toy Story. Me and Buzz haven't either, but there's always a first time, right, Buzz? This is f***ing stupid. <laughs> there, I, I said it. <laughs> this is lame. <laughs> and the- if, you, if anyone has ever watched this, and it has 132 thumbs up, just slightly uh, outweighed by the 159 thumbs down. But even still, anyone who has ever watched something like this and has felt compelled to watch it all the way through and upvoted it should not be allowed to operate heavy machinery, <laughs> supervise small children, or breathe altogether. <laughs> I mean, this is cluttering up fucking YouTube. It yeah. has 340 thousand views which admittedly is like a fraction of the the amount of views that people making squeaky voices while they play minecraft or just whispering get (laughs) but that world ben that world exists where people are creating this crap and it's it's there and it's popular maybe it's it's three hundred and thirty thousand people like us watching it and taking the piss out of it or maybe it's 330,000 people, and at least half of those people, or maybe all of them, apart from me and you, adore it and can and, and understand the, the language, the, the bizarre language that they've created with, with jump cuts and no sound and, and subtitles which are unreadable. Obviously, it's a world we don't understand, but it, it exists, it's there, and it's, it's bloody weird. I don't even understand it as a hobby. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or as a creative exercise. I love watching Toy Story and I love watching Scooby-Doo and Winnie the Pooh. Why can't I watch them all at the same time? I mean, there is a very good chance that these are all being done by like nine or ten year olds just playing about with Windows Movie Maker. In which case, the joke is well and truly on us because we've just devoted a segment to it. But I guess it's never really a waste of time if you can spoil a young child's fun. I think we spoil animation there. I think that's what we've spoiled. So joining me now on the podcast is a man who we have had on before. He is a champion as the king of independent animation. He's Bill Plimpton. 
a man with many, many film credits to his name. He's one of the most prolific short animated filmmakers, and that reputation is of late certainly uh, being reinforced by a propensity toward independent animated feature films, for the most part painstakingly put together using the same approaches and resources as he would with his independent shorts. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Cheetan, which we've talked about at some length on the podcast. And on the website itself, he also made the film Idiots and Angels, and uh, Hair High, Mutant Aliens, The Tune, and several others. Cheetan, which we saw at Annecy last year, got a hugely positive response. It's been doing very well since... Quite jaw-dropping in a way, and a really, really gorgeous sort of textural look to the film, a kind of ethereal vibe, and uh, as is the mainstay of a lot of his work, very, very funny, very off-the-wall, very interesting use of character animation and character design, character interplay. All of these factors have also come into play with his latest film, which he's thrown himself into pretty much immediately after Chetan. It's called Revengeance, and it's kind of unique in the sense that he hasn't written it himself. It's a collaboration with writer Jim Luhan, who has created this story and come up with the characters and the premise, and Bill Plimpton is taking the directorial reins this time around. It's very much a different beast than uh, what I think perhaps people have come to expect from a Bill Plimpton feature. It's an interesting new direction. It's currently in the last phase of a crowdfunding campaign that will hopefully ensure its completion. Of course, knowing Bill Plimpton as resourceful as he's proven himself to be over the years, I imagine it will probably get done regardless. That being said, as with the best crowdfunding campaigns, and Bill Plimpton's really been kind of a leader of these, some really excellent incentives, things that people want to get their hands on. For most, I think it's enough to have the film itself. That's why these sort of campaigns are so great. You're buying a product, essentially, and you are helping the product get made. Of course, if your pockets go a little deeper, then you can get your hands on some real goodies and some rarities and some actual artwork. And uh, if you go onto Kickstarter, you can search for Revengeance. You can find out all about the project. But in the meantime, we do have Mr. Bill Plimpton on the horn. Bill, how are you, sir? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for calling. So the last time we spoke, I believe, it was just when Cheetan was wrapping up. It's clearly done very well since then. I mean, what have you been up to since uh, since the film got finished? I um, have been uh, handling the distribution of, of Cheetan. It's been slow going, uh, especially in the U.S., because there's still this prejudice against adult adult animated films. And so, uh, consequently, we've had to distribute the film ourselves which isn't necessarily a bad thing. We, we make more money that way, but it's a lot more work. We've been really, um, you know, you had to print the posters and do all the bookings of the theater, and, and I had to travel around for about two and a half weeks around America uh, promoting the film and doing um, Q&A after the screening. And so it's, it's, it's a big, big process. It's a lot of work. And, but the film is a success. The reviews have been phenomenal. The audiences were good, and now we're moving on to the next film. Oh, I, I should mention that the film is now available on Vimeo On Demand. Mm-hmm. So if people want to see the film, they can go to Vimeo On Demand and, and actually get a get a copy for themselves. Also, um, all of my films now, I think this is new. I don't think I mentioned this to you. My entire library has been bought by Shorts HD, and they are uh, uh, releasing the film on iTunes. So my entire library of about 
14 hours of, of animation is now available on iTunes if people want to want to see it. And then um, I moved on to uh, Revengeance, and this is a film written by Jim Lujan, L-U-J-A-N, and he's uh, a buddy of mine from San Diego, uh, from the San Diego Comic Con. He, he lives in Los Angeles, and I fell in love with his animation and his cartoon shorts. They're really fantastic characters, and my kind of humor, very. Um, surreal and crude and kind of offensive. And uh, so I asked him if he wanted to work on a project together, and he said he'd be delighted to. So he wrote a script, and it's a really knockout script. It's one of the best scripts I've ever seen. And I've been animating it, and it's becoming expensive to animate it, so we decided to go to Kickstarter again. This will be the third time we've gone there. And... Um, uh, so far, the response has been good, but we still haven't reached our goal, so we're getting a little nervous. <laughs> and one of the cool things about it is that um, if you do uh, purchase, I believe, or you pledge $1,500, uh, you get all the cool things like the drawings and the DVDs and the posters and all that stuff, the books, but also I will draw you into the film. So you will, whoever donates it will have a cameo in the movie and generally speaking everybody in the film is is a sleazeball a bad person so your probability of being a a, a weird you know kind of evil person is pretty good Excellent. <laughs> uh so because uh, it's it's all about uh, corrupt politicians and 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 uh religious fanatics biker gangs, crazy wrestlers, you know, transvestites, all sorts of bizarre uh, people that are pissed off. It's my kind of movie. It's really something I, I, I like to do. I could definitely see how it would be like a fit with um, your style and your ability to kind of create oh, yeah. amazing sort of universes. But you know what? Yeah, I, when he showed me the drawings, um, I, uh, the characters, the character designs, yeah, I thought they were nice. And I said, well, I'll, I'll streamline them and make them more Plimpton-esque. And the more I do that, the worse, uh, the worse they got. So I realized that his his drawings were just perfect. They're very, uh, they're raw and kind of um, crude and and uh, grotesque. But it just really fits the story so well that I I decided to keep his drawings 100%. I wouldn't change a thing. So it's it's uh, it's really a pleasure doing his drawings. He, he wrote the story. He's doing all the voices. He's doing the music. And he did the character design. So it's it's a, like a vacation for me. All they have to do is the animation and that's and kind of color the drawings. So it's it's really fun. Is this the first time you've, you've animated to someone else's script? Yeah, I did a short film uh, called Fan of the Flower with Dan O'Shannon, but that was that was just a short film. This is a feature film, and so it is the first time I've I've done that. Overall, has it been a smooth process then that working? Yeah, well, he's he's great. Uh, one, the only problem is, uh, you know, I'd come up with some ideas, some verbal ideas, and he shoots them all down. But you know, that's okay because he's such a good writer. I trust him. And uh, so it's 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 not a big deal. It's I mean he's just a brilliant writer. The the depth of the script is so good. There's so many interesting, fascinating characters in the film. 
uh, it's, it's just fun to uh, to work with. So will Jim be, is he co-directing it with you, or are you taking on the No, I'm directing it, but uh, I'm directing, producing, and animating, and he's writing, uh, doing the voices, the character design, and the uh, music. Excellent. So it's kind of even, even uh, deal. The last couple of uh, feature films that you did were very sort of um, uh, textural and uh, had a very kind of yes. painterly look, and this one is quite stark it's more like some of the uh some of your other recent short films and uh did his sort of approach and design style when it came to your direction did that sort of inform what you did visually this time around oh absolutely it's uh it's such a great style the, the colors are a little too garish for me i toned down the colors a bit so they're a little more subtle but the designs and the uh the distortion is really, uh, uh, it was just so beautiful. I, I really, really enjoyed doing it. So, so how far into production are you guys at the moment? We're about a third of the way done. Um, I'm, I'm working on a couple, well, I'm, I'm doing publicity for Cheatin', and I'm, I'm working on a, the Kickstarter campaign, so I, the last few months I haven't been able to, to concentrate on the animation. But I think starting next month I'll be able to devote full-time to the animation and then I can really crank. I think it should be done uh, by the winter of 2016 or 2015 actually, somewhere around Christmas time because it's going really fast. Mm. Um, but that, but that's, that's the animation, So, but we still have to do the sound and the editing and the um, sound editing, so it's still a lot of work to go. The money you're raising at the moment, uh, what will that go toward? Coloring. It's we we have we had to hire like four uh, color artists, and it's a lot of work because there's a lot of detail in the drawings. So there's going to be about thirty thousand drawings, and each one has to be colored. So that's where that's where the money's going. So it's good cause. We definitely have a good uh, track record when it comes to the crowdfunding campaigns, um, and I've I've always been sort of drawn to yours because there's always something in the incentives that'll really sort of appeal. And I think with this mm -hmm. one, there's some really great ones, some ones that were recently announced. Um, certainly animation enthusiasts, fans of yours, fans of production art, to get their hands on some really like good stuff, not just from, this, yeah. from some of your other stuff, your earlier work. Yeah, those are very rare. Those are very rare drawings, and we, we figured that uh, it's a good cause. We really want to um, you know, uh, finance this, this Revengeance film, so we decided to put in some of those rare pieces of art and they, those have been very popular also last time we spoke there were a couple of other things that you had mentioned i'm not sure how far along they are or whether they're they're sort of things you're able to talk about now uh one was mm -hmm. the film about hitler yeah yeah i'd like to i'd like to talk about that that's really close to being done we're i'm doing uh viewing the final edit uh, this friday actually and then we're taking it to the sound guy to uh polish up the sound so we're hoping to start entering it in festivals um, real soon. So if, if, it's, if people like it, I don't know if people will like it, um, it'll be hitting the festival circuit this fall, um, you know, like September or October. But it's, it's such a weird film. I mean, it it's, it's, could be very offensive or it could be funny. I don't, I don't have no idea how people are going to take it. I think it's funny. I think it's a really wacky film. Um, you know, we got we got some old footage of Hitler's uh, animated cartoons that he made uh, during the war, and those are really funny, really funny cartoons. Then we found some drawings, uh, sketches of 
Hitler's amusement park. He's going to do an amusement park for um, kids. He planned one called Naziland, so kids can go and play. And all sorts of intimate uh, home movies from Hitler and, and stills. You know, he was a big comic book freak. I don't know if you knew that or not. And he, every year at Nuremberg, there would be a, a big comic fair, and he would take all of his ushers, and they would march up and down the Nuremberg streets and sell comics and, and trade trade their comics. Who knew? So a, lot of, a lot of nuggets like that. Excellent. So the ominous sound of the drums in the background there, it's the sign that it's the end of another squiggly podcast. I've had fun. Have you had fun, Ben? I always do, Stephen. I always do. It's a shame we have to part, but we've had a good time. We've uh, talked about VFX, talked about animation. We've covered it all. Yes, all. There's nothing left to talk about. Our work here is done. Thank you, as always, for listening in, for indulging our tangents and our babble and... uh, Sticking around for the good stuff in between. Uh, thanks, of course, to our guests this episode of the Squiggly Podcast. Mr. Bill Plimpton, you can find out about his latest project, Revengeance, at revengeancethemovie.blogspot.com, and his website is plimptoons.com. And if you're listening to this when the podcast has just come out, there's still a few days left for his Revengeance campaign, so you might be in with a chance to uh, throw some shekels his way and get your hands on some uh, animation goodies. Thank you also to Siren Yaley for some turtle talk, waxing nostalgic and uh, talking remakes and all that good stuff. Of course, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is airing on Nickelodeon and Nickelodeon UK here in the UK. Also, don't forget the next edition of This Is Not A Cartoon is coming out at the end of May, featuring Oscar winner Daniel Greaves in uh, Conversation, as well as tons of great films. Find out more about what's been screened on thisisnotacartoon.com. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. It is edited and produced by Ben Mitchell with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. You can also visit Squiggly on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Squiggly is also on Twitter, at Squiggly. And don't forget, for all the latest news reviews, interviews, podcasts, videos, the chat room, everything else from the world of animation, visit squiggly.com. Squiggly.